The problem here is sort of going back to the sort of mythology of Icarus. They just reached too high. The prices that they're asking for these things just got so crazy. The first time it broke a million dollars, people are like, what's going on? And then it started getting silly. If they were just doing their own thing and not trying to get the news involved, I don't think anyone would care as much. But they're actually trying to pretend that this is like financial news. And when they do this, it just really begs for that level of scrutiny. So all the auction houses either need to stop calling for this attention or really, really try to appear responsible and take seriously situations where they're selling something which has been determined by hobbyists not to be entirely authentic. Greetings and welcome to a blog to watch weekly. Mm, this is going to be a fun one because there's not the usual three suspects. There is actually, and suspect may be the correct word to use, there is a fourth suspect Jose, also known as at Perestroika, Periscope himself, joins us this week. A man who has been in the news himself. I've seen your name, your handle, emblazoned on many a newspaper and many a watch blog, Jose, but you are joining us to actually have a chat. First of all, how are you? I'm uh, very good, thank you. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's been interesting, uh, interesting few days. A lot of messages uh, I received and uh, it's been very What were the best messages? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, most of the messages are, you know, like re- support and, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, like saying, oh, you know, you have been vindicated by the, you know, by basically by, uh, you know, w- what has been reported. And, uh, and, you know, people want to want to even, you know, to uh, want the, uh, the mainstream media to, to talk about more of my stories. The best place I reckon to refer to this is is your own website for the information on this particular story. So before we say good morning to David and Ariel properly, Jose, tell us where the best place to look for those that maybe aren't quite up to speed with this story. Well, I mean, meanwhile, the story is even on CNN.com, <laughs> uh, which is like really interesting. But but the story on CNN.com uh, is, is very reduced and limited to the facts, so they didn't you know, they didn't say where the story broke first. They didn't give me any credit. They didn't give any credit to the newspaper in Switzerland that uh, broke the story first. So it's very, you know, very focused on, on the story itself. But, you know, it was in, on Bloomberg. It was on uh, Neue Zürcher Zeitung in, uh, in Switzerland. And, of course, on my website. And what is your website? Periscope.com. Excellent. Get the plug in there early. You was get it in early. Also, if you go to Watch Pro, Rob and our friends there have reported quite extensively. And this is basically about an Omega watch that came up for sale at Philips and has now proved to be uh, not the watch that everyone believed it was and actually appears to have been deliberately put together to try and kid everybody on. Before we go any further though, David, good morning. How are you? Good morning, very well. I just wanted to add to that point, that, and it was Omega that bought the watch. <laughs> I think that yes. that has to be added to the, to the brief description of what happened. I'm very well. How are you, Rick? I am not bad at all. And Ariel, how are you? I know that on top of all of this, you actually just really want to speak about Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> there was Ariel's been to the movies. No, I mean, you always want to talk about watches and movies, and... That's a kid's movie that celebrates watches in a way that I hadn't really seen since I was a kid. So it was kind of interesting to see that. Weird movie, not for kids, is a meta joke about superhero movies, but watch culture, hey? 
So tell us quickly then the watches. Is there specific watches that feature it or is it just the idea of the watch? Because you say it's a cartoon. Yeah, okay, so uh, it's it's not really a Spider-Man movie in the scheme of things, though it is. <laughs> it's more like a science fiction thing, but in a silly way. Like, they're worried about screwing up the destruction of canon in the timeline. And obviously, this is a joke about Marvel and, and Disney, where all these characters have this 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 sort of ornate canon and all the new stories can't ruin the canon so the the movie's like a joke about that really and kids have no idea what any of that means but in order to travel through these dimensions this is like the second of these spider-verse movies where there's a bunch of different spider people i guess they're not all people they're other animals and things um but the, the, the in order to not glitch each of these characters has to wear a special kind of a smartwatch but here's the thing, they don't all have the same one, and so the different versions of them have different watches, and some of them like will decorate them and stuff like that. So you have this idea that there is this distinction amongst what they wear, meaning the watch is part of the costume, it matches the look, and they have all these sort of distinctive things, and it's like, it's a lot of wristwatch screen time in terms of the, the feature, the focus on it. And I remember when I was growing up as a kid in the 80s, you had watches in movies all the time as props, science fiction or spy movies or what it was. You had watches that were like meaningful parts of the movie that did things that watches didn't really do, but it got you excited about watches in the way that, you know, movies get you excited about things. And it's interesting to see that making a comeback because I hadn't seen a lot of that sort of, you know, since I was a kid. Cool. And I suppose it kind of does tie us into our story, Yuzi, about Spider-Man. It's all about destroying the canon <laughs> or not destroying the canon. I, I, I guess this is kind of where this watch come from. So let's get straight into it. Tropical Speedmaster 2915-1, a record-breaking Omega Gaga at Phillips. I think is uh, how your article reports it. First of all, tell us what, forget about this particular watch and what happened. What is important about a 2915-1 Speedmaster in the first place? Well, I mean, that's the the very first Speedmaster chronograph to begin with, made in in the mid-1950s, 1957 to be exact. And it's just, a, you know, from, from a design point of view, it's, it's just a fascinating watch. It has these uh, broad arrows, you know, uh, hands that, that are like super, you know, attractive and, you know, just something that hasn't been seen on other watches before. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a beautiful watch. People like firsts in this industry, right? The first of anything is like valued. We know that this watch is not what it claimed to be. Are there two nine... One five dash ones that are correct. Like, was there something to compare this against? Well, it's a little bit difficult because uh, you know the uh, you know there's there's not much from what I understand, and you know uh, when I was researching this whole thing, there's not much really you know like in depth scholarship out there on these uh, particular models. Um, one of the most important parts of this watch is the bezel. And, and, you know, everybody's saying something else, you know, like some people think that these bezels are original while other, while other people say they are fake and reproductions or, or whatever, or service bezels. So, so you know, uh, surrounding the bezels, there's a lot of mystery whether, you know, whether a bezel is original or not. And, and you know, a lot of the value of such a watch lies in the bezel. Okay, so 
take us to the next stage of this story. We have a potential watch that is a celebration of the first of a thing, as Ariel says, that's what's valuable. And this watch appears on the scene. When did you find out about it? Like, when did this first pique your interest? Was it prior to being sold or after it was sold? Um, so I didn't even, you know, learn about this, you know, um, multi-million dollar uh, auction um, before I was sent pictures of, of the watch, how it looked before it was auctioned. So basically a few days after the auction, uh, people started reaching out to me with, uh, with these pictures, right? And they were like from Switzerland. And, and you know, I didn't know about this auction at all. So I, I didn't, didn't even follow the auction, which is like you know, <laughs> uh, quite interesting. And uh, so they started reaching out to me, like I think two or three different, different people who had seen the watch in the flesh at a, a dealer in Bern in Switzerland. And um, and so they said the watch, you know, was was not what uh, what it was uh, presented as. As, and so um, I started comparing, you know, comparing the the pictures and saw that the dial was exactly the same, but the bezel was a different one, and then the movement was was from a much later uh, Speedmaster, not even the same model, but like a different, you know, later model from uh, you know from from nineteen probably nineteen sixty five or something. So you were able to compare what was sold to a previous iteration. So was it actually this was the second time that this watch was coming up for sale? Explain how you were able to compare the photos that you were sent from the auction that this was record-breakingly sold at to a previous. Where were these previous photos coming from? They were sent to me uh, by these people who reached out to me after the auction. And they received these pictures uh, from from the original seller. Right. Apparently, the guy was trying to sell the watch like for fifty thousand Swiss francs, and nobody would would want to buy it because it was just you know a, 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 an assembly of of uh, parts from different time periods. Right. So, you know, a watch like this to be a grail uh, needs to be you know uh, absolutely everything needs to be period correct, right? And um, and in this case, it was it was in my opinion, it was a project watch, like you know something that someone started with with one part. Maybe maybe they found the case on its own or whatever, and then they 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 bought a movement, and then they bought a dial, and then they assembled this watch. Right. Okay. And then from that dealer, it was sold on, or was put. Did they put it up for auction or did the person who assembled this sell it to a third party who then ended up with auction with Phillips? Yes. So he finally found someone who would buy the watch. And that's also like a quite a quite a famous dealer from um, from the French part of Switzerland. And so this guy bought the watch and then um, the next we know it it appeared at Phillips in this uh, absolutely gorgeous uh, condition you know with uh, with the high gloss pictures uh, published in the in the catalog so if it wasn't for the fact that this was as has been reported i think it's probably is the classic representation of a frankenstein watch I, this might be a bit of a weird question but if it wasn't a frankenstein watch like if you hadn't been able to spot and all the experts that this was cobbled together would this have been 
worth what it was sold at? Like, if this was the real deal, is it worth the three million euros or whatever it sold for if it had been the real thing? Never. Now, so Never. even if this had been the first of a first and all the rest of it, it was still a stupid price. Absolutely stupid price, and I think that's what what you know made made a lot of people question this auction uh-huh. because it was just so over the top. I mean, you know, a watch like this normally would fetch, you know. I mean, it was it was you know it was in a in a you know the dial was beautiful, you know, looking at the dial, this trop- nicely tropicalized dial, so even. Also, nobody has seen you know a, a nice tropical dial like this in in a watch like this because normally. If you look at the tropical dials that are out there, they all have freckles, so they are you know unevenly tropicalized. So, and this one is like really you know completely even, uh, even yeah. to the edge of the dial, where you where you would say basically the edge of the dial would would you know would be underneath the inner bezel. So basically, if this was tropicalized by you know by UV light, for instance. You know the basically the the area of the dial that lies underneath the inner bezel would naturally be darker, but this one is like completely even. Ho- Jose, uh, let me let me, let me ask you a question here, just because I want people who are casual listeners that may not understand the situation to first understand what was the crime or crimes committed or or at least the wrongdoing, because I think that we're hearing things like Frankenstein watch, which means an assemblage of parts. Obviously, this is something that, that went for too much money at auction. There was sort of some type of a made-up story here. But help explain what the crime or crime crimes or, or the wrongdoing is. Okay. So my findings were when I compared the watch, you know, that uh, the, in the pictures that were sent to me to the watch that was sold, is that basically the dial was the same, the hands were, were, were changed, um, the bezel was changed because the bezel was like an aftermarket bezel. Um, the case is difficult to say because you know there's no there's no serial number in these early early watches, so it's all about the movement number. And so the case was probably you know my, my assumption is that the case was kept because the case back. If you look at the markings, you know, uh, on some of the notches, you can see that this is basically the same case back. So I, I suppose the, ga- the case was kept as well. And, and then the movement, I've, I've never seen the movement, you know, there were no movement pictures. But in the catalog, there was a different movement number, a much earlier one that would have been, you know, more or less period correct. Actually not, because, uh, you know, and I, I will talk about this um, going forward. But basically, a, a, a much earlier movement number. So, and I've never seen the movement. But as it turns out now, uh, Omega made a statement that basically the bridge where the movement number is engraved, uh, that bridge is is fake. So basically, you know, they they use the very same movement from a different Speedmaster model, from a much later Speedmaster model. Um, that had a, a movement number 25 million and something. They used the very same movement, but replaced that escapement wheel bridge, that small bridge uh, that bears the, the movement number. And so the, that bridge is fake. And having a fake part in this watch makes actually the whole watch being fake or counterfeit. So we're saying that the watch that was sold by the dealer was then added to 
and tweaked some more. So it wasn't that the dealer who had put this together, as you say, as a project watch, and it then went through as it was. There was other things that happened to this watch before it reached the auction. Yes. So the dial, if you compare the dial, you have the loom markers. Mm-hmm. And so on the pictures that I was sent, you can see that the loom markers are very bright and they are they have this greenish loom. So I was the the people who saw the watch in the flesh, they told me that the that the dial had been relumed, that it was a greenish, more modern loom. It wasn't radium something, but po- possibly tritium or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, and what happened, you know, if you compare the pictures between the you know between the condition uh, as as sold by this uh, dealer in Bern and then the watch at auction, you can see that the the loom markers have been darkened. It's still the same body of loom, so it wasn't it wasn't relumed or something, but it was the loom was dyed to make it look like radium. If I pay three million for a watch. I would want it to be generously radioactive, you know? So just give me all the radium in the world, you know, just don't relume it. <laughs> I, I want to say here that Jose is sort of like a fake treasure hunter and his his what he's trying to do is look for things that are not actual historical objects. And the reason that these things exist is that there's a big market value to these authentically historic uh, uh, sport watches, um, or early versions of, of of popular watches today, there's just a there's a special you know set of collectors out there that really places a high value in these sort of rare antique prototypes or sport watches that are that remain in, in in good condition. And so there's this incentive for criminals out there to create watches that look as though they may actually be these rare old sport watches, but they're not. They're 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 fake in the sense that they are made to look as though they are old. Sometimes they use real parts mixed with new parts. Sometimes they're all new parts. They are artistic forgeries, carefully designed to to cause confusion and make people think, well, what if it is real? What if it is real? Even if there's doubt with a lot of these historic objects, it's quite difficult to actually say something was made or wasn't made because there wasn't good record keeping. So I'm just trying to create some context here so people understand what's going on here because there were not records. It's not as though you could make something fake and then make people convince people that it existed even though there's no records. Today you couldn't do this. There's there's so much more records of everything that's made today that in 30 years from now, if you're like, oh, hey, there's this crazy watch from 2020 that no one's ever heard about, well, we'd look, go back in the records and be like, what are you talking about? That was never made. But with the 1950s, that's actually a very different story. And so this sort of plausible um, uh, ability for these watches to pop up out of the blue does in a way exist. Uh, would you add to that, Jose? What would you change? No, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's more or less uh, how it is. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, the thing is um, yeah, it's just, you know, for instance, just to explain the, the term Frankenstein watch, I mean, Frankenstein, you know, it, it, everybody knows the Frankenstein monster that was like basically made from, from different body parts of you know, different people. So this is the same here. So this is, this is a watch that uh, you know consists of 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 parts from different watches, and uh, some some parts are not even period correct. They don't belong to that watch, and um, 
you know, you so you have you have basically it's very difficult to find if you know a watch that was assembled from parts if all the parts are period correct. Uh, it's even more difficult than if if some parts are of course not period correct. So Frankenstein watches are easier to spot if uh, you know if the watches are not period correct. So yeah, important that you play along at home with this and go to periscope.com and have a look at the pictures as we're talking. That will be very helpful for those of you that are not like bang up to date with everything that's going on. Let me say one thing here, Rick. There has been a discussion in the community of why a blog to watch has not written about this. And if you think it's appropriate, I'd like to say for a second why. Yeah, go for it. I think that the, the community is always shocked when these sort of frauds and forgeries come out. But I think that especially through following Jose's work, uh, this is not that uncommon. And very (laughs) often we discuss how uh, these types of watches at auction are extremely risky and there's so much more incentive to pretend that story is real than to actually tell the truth in this context. A blog to watch does not talk about auction lots uh, on any regular basis. It's something that we rarely do, if, if ever. We think that this is, is, you know, the stories they tell is a, is a form of marketing and that it should be advertised as marketing. A lot of auctions have, because of the sort of once in a while, amazingly rare thing, which is auction, uh, people try to get news stories and a lot of people would like the value of these things to go up. And that's not really the sort of business a blog to watch is in. We want to talk about basically buying watches available at, at retail price or on the pre-owned market and getting interested in brands. If you're interested in sort of the, the, the shock of highly priced exotic items at auction, that's just sort of a different um, type of, of, of thing that we're talking about. And we don't really like to talk about every crime which is committed in the watch industry because, you know, frankly, there's a lot. <laughs> so... I, I think it's great that people are talking about this. I think that they're great that there's a scrutiny. You know, people like Jose who do this investigative thing, this the system of checks and balances, because it doesn't really exist. Uh, there isn't a real system mm. of checks and balances in this sort of luxury auction world. And unfortunately, people like Jose are demonized at times because they're calling people out for this. But in reality, this is consumer protection. This is guerrilla consumer protection. And, and we're, we're, we're a consumer publication. And so this should be celebrated and and it should be made more available uh, not less available 100 percent. so indiana jose as we're now calling you the hunter of fake artifacts i, I will be seeing that movie I, in two days they'll be watching that a hamilton exactly. <laughs> ari suddenly got into this a blog to watch watches watches all of a sudden it's suddenly you asked after like every flight <laughs> i do i do right jose it will uh people will notice that we are largely talking about the omega side of this and we'll come into a bit more as to what's happened and that we're not so much talking about the phillips side of it now it's important to point out first of all that i think we're only at the very beginning of this story i think this still i think this is a i i, I think this is caught into the mainstream media in a way that could create a pretty existential risk to watch auctions in general so. going forward. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's, this is the, this is the foothills of what is going to happen in this market. But Jose, it's fair to say that you've had a little letter, maybe in the form of an email, and so we're not going to try and get you into more trouble by talking more or too much more about the Phillips side. But I wonder if we, if you'd just like to take a chance to just go into a little bit of detail that you're happy to do so uh, on this side of the story. Yeah. So early May, before the auction in Geneva, 
you know, before the auction season in Geneva, I received, you know, an, an injunction from the Republican Canton of Geneva. And this is like, you know, this is a document that was sent to me by the civil court. And maybe, maybe, you know, just to understand what this is all about. So basically, they want me to stop talking about Philips Fine Watches Limited. And maybe, you know, the, the interesting point is, is, uh, is the third point here, the third paragraph, which says, prohibits Jose Perez from disseminating in any way on any media and through any channels, any content claiming or implying that Philips Fine Watches Limited is engaged in fraudulent conduct, offering for sale counterfeit or dubiously sourced watches or otherwise infringing Philips's personality rights. I, I didn't know. I didn't know Philips had a personality, but there we go. That's a different matter. Yeah, I was also like surprised because Philips is a is a company, right? Yeah, I think it's one of those old fashioned definitions of giving limited companies personalities uh, in order to protect them. So we'll leave it at that. Well, I mean, look, it, it, there's nothing here that we're calling Philips out on specifically. We don't claim that they're any in any unique situation. We simply claim that there's an incentive for businesses like them to create stories and to push value around them. I think the problem here is sort of uh, going back to the sort of mythology of Icarus, where they just they just reach too high. The prices that they're asking for these things just got so crazy. I mean, it, it, the first time it broke a million dollars, people are like, what's going on? And then it started getting silly. They just reached too high. The tower got too tall. They, they got too close to the sun. And it's just going to collapse at some point. Like, need to have discipline. We can only make so much money. If we make too much, we're going to call too much attention. And I think that that's what's happening right now. It's just this this fractious relationship with trying to sort of exploit, but not exploiting uh, so much that they, they get called out. That's what's happening here. They 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 never really understand what's not too much. You know, they trying to get the financial media to constantly cover them. I mean. If they were just doing their own thing and not trying to get the news involved, I don't think anyone would care as much. But they're actually trying to pretend that this is like financial news. And when they do this, <laughs> it just it, it, it really begs for that level of scrutiny. So all the auction houses either need, need to stop calling for this attention or really, really try to appear responsible and take seriously situations where they're selling something which has been determined by hobbyists not to be entirely authentic yeah this this also raises two questions one what was what who had what motive uh, when they bid so high why did this reach this price point what, what do we think and two what is the responsibility and should there be any shouldn't there be any uh from auction houses when it comes to uh, like you say ariel bringing these two to the public and offering them for sale and charging, you know, an arm and a leg and and so much more in terms of buyer and seller's premium. So again, what was the motive and who's responsible? Yeah, I mean, auction houses are always going to lean on the whole buyer beware thing as a way of, you know, just getting rid of any risk of what actually happens. But I do think the motive thing, and we'll just touch on this now. Uh, so to explain where the story then went, and David, you mentioned this briefly earlier on, it was Omega that bought this watch. So it appears to have been a situation because three people that used to work for Omega that were involved in this watch no longer work for Omega uh, in various capacities, both quite senior and actually quite senior capacities. Uh, and those same people 
one would assume were also involved in encouraging, and I believe it's what it, how it's been reported, in encouraging Omega to buy this watch in the first place. So it appears to have been an inside job, basically from start to finish, in terms of people who could give this watch credibility from the Omega side, giving it that credibility on the one hand to presumably the auction house and those that they know that... Cause I don't know if plan A was always for them to effectively buy their own gear or whether that maybe came along later on. They thought, wait a minute, we could we could effectively cover this up by buying it ourselves because no one's then going to look at it. It's going to go and presumably sit in a drawer or in a glass case in a museum somewhere and no one's ever going to be allowed I, to touch I, it I again. I have a comment here. I, I think that this is a situation where Omega got taken advantage of it is very frequently the case where companies have their own heritage departments and Omega happens to have a museum. They frequently have to purchase items from these museums and it's very natural that they're going to want to stock their museum with the best stuff and they have to sort of outbid others and it's normal and for many, many years, watch brands have been buying their own watches at auction. None of that is new in any way, shape or form. But what is a little bit newer is these extremely high prices. And, you know, these brands, especially the corporate ones, can have some deep pockets. So they can get duped into spending a lot of money on watches that, are, that they feel, whether through one person there or collectively, you know, oh, we need to own that. Oh, that's that really special one? Well, of course, of course, we need to have it. Um, and so there can there are criminals that can make out uh, because they know that brands are frequently buying these things back. So you could have a coordinated effort where <laughs> Omega is 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 doubly the victim here. Not only do they you know do they look quite embarrassed for purchasing something like this, but they're they're the ones that spent the money on it when all they were trying to do was the sort of noble thing of have a great o Omega watch. Uh, for the, for their their museum, their heritage collection, you know they can make future you know re-releases on it and cool stuff like that. Um, so I think that this is just showing how um, this this auction system can take advantage uh, of certain types of buying behavior and available money out there. I mean, if there's if there's money being spent on something, fakes will be made. <laughs> we 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 know that happens with watches. Why are we surprised when it happens in this way? Yeah, but I think I think I think there's there's something that needs to be mentioned here because you know there's nothing I don't think there's nothing wrong with brands buying you know uh, you know interesting watches for their museums. Uh, I mean this this started in in the early 2000s with Patek Philippe when they started you know thinking about making a museum and then they started buying all these you know crazy pieces at auction and that's why you know um, prices started to rise like crazy, but. You know, I think in this case, there's this, this, uh, you know, this other thing that basically it wasn't disclosed that it was uh, Omega or bidding on the on the watch. The official story is that the watch was sold to someone in China, and uh, you know, if if you have been following the news, uh, I mean, you know, when Neue Zürcher Zeitung broke the story. Um, Neue Zürcher Zeitung is a, is a prestigious Swiss newspaper from the German part of Switzerland. And so they did their own investigation, reached out to, uh, to Omega, reached out to, to the auction house uh, and asked for statements. And so, you know, when, when Omega made a statement, basically they, were, they, they told the story what happened with, uh, with uh, all these insiders that they were duped and everything. But you know the story that they actually bought the watch themselves came 
out only two days later in a in a separate statement. Well, hold on, Jose. First of all, you're, I, I don't deny any of the things you're saying, but it is not abnormal for these brands to not disclose everything. These watches, if they have this value, they're frequently targets for theft. These museums are frequently robbed, as we know, and it's not a good situation. They have, and, and these auctions frequently are purchased, there's proxies, and we don't know who's actually bidding. Like, I don't support that, but that's just a part of the thing. So I don't think that any of that behavior by itself necessitates sort of a wrongdoing um, by by Omega. I, I hear what you're saying, but I think that is just sort of part of the suspicious behavior which occurs with watch auctions in general. I really think here that Omega um, was a victim. I don't think Omega stands to gain. You know, going back to what Rick said, incentives um, they they don't they don't gain anything by by doing. Every Omega watch at auction doesn't benefit them. It benefits the auction house. They only benefit when people buy new Omegas. That's that's pretty much it. And so I I, I really see uh, uh, Omega here. Uh, and again, you know the story more than me. But from from the evidence I've seen, from what you're talking about, it does seem that Omega is just trying to you know corporate safe face. They don't want to look silly. No one does, and they just you know normally say less than less than the, less than the whole story, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think I think you know. Uh, it's it's in the first line. It's probably more than more damage control than anything else. It's sad though. It's sad and it's embarrassing. And honestly, I I think the problem is that there's these huge amounts of money associated with it. These watch auction houses are responsible for these million dollar price valuations, and it just it it got crazy. No one who's been buying and collecting these things for years takes these prices seriously, and it's attracted so much nefarious intent, so much criminality that this is this is just one of many many things, and it's going to continue happening. So, what do auction houses do, David? You've been in and around this for long enough as well. How do auction houses respond to this? Do they just need to sit down and shut up about it? Uh, let the market recover? Is the thing just broken and they just need to admit it? How how do you prevent something like this happening again? Or is it that actually somebody just needs to give Josie a job in Switzerland working for somebody who and all all the auctions catalogs have to go past Jose before they get approved. No, it's easier to just shut Jose down, <laughs> just send him a nasty level uh, letter from the content of Geneva and tell him to just never again write anything about <laughs> what they are doing and just keep doing it. <laughs> Which is sad, but apparently that's what's happening and um like like we say, you know, the Franken watch is, is a term for a reason. I mean, it exists, and it's not the first time. No one's saying like, "Huh, Franken watch at auction." I've never heard that before. You know, it's happening, and it's been happening for so long. And um, I just wanted to touch on, on on one thing. And again, generally speaking, it uh, you know, it could be said that it's good for a brand if you know news break about uh, a record-breaking watch that they made you know decades ago and that it's so desirable because it implies that the brand itself is desirable for the collectors for the connoisseurs who know what they are doing and again people who are contemplating you know buying a speedmaster and then whatever else for like 7k or 8k they will go to the brand that has 
that sort of collectability and say, oh, you know, if I get it now, maybe it will be worth later on so much more and it's a good investment and people like the brand and they trust it and whatever else. So it's good for the image of the brand. And this is why we've seen, and again, it's it's basically any number of high-end brands that you can think of from the luxury segment buy their own watches at auction and have their own museums most of the time, right? Um, that happens all the time. And part of the reason for that is definitely uh, to boost their image. Well, there's sure to be a lot more coming out of this story. We will keep in touch with Jose about it. But let's actually talk about a watch which goes back, and it's probably, to a large extent, uh, the sequel to the watch that maybe created this problem in the first place. And this was Rolex releasing what effectively everyone's calling the new Paul Newman. Rolex revives the Paul Newman with a new Le Mans-inspired chronograph Daytona the 126529LN, as reported by Sean on a blog to watch. Somebody draw me a line between the auction of the original uh, Paul Newman Rolex and what has happened with the story that Yuzi has covered. How are these things all linked together? So basically, you know, what, what started the craze and, and why, why, in my opinion, watches also have become so difficult to get, especially Rolex models, is, is the auction that took place in 2017 where um, Paul Newman's very own Rolex uh, Daytona Paul Newman was sold. So Paul Newman um, had, had, a, had a dial with this, had a, had a watch with this... Um, um, how how was it called? Um, like uh, you know, the, the Paul Newman. Well, it's the Paul Newman dial, which is the weird yeah, thing. It's difficult to describe there, in any other way. Other than it's the Paul Newman it. dial. Maybe Ariel remi- yeah. remembers the name. You mean the, the style of the dial? Yes. You know, it, there's another name for it, not Paul Newman, but something else. Oh. Yeah, it was something silly. It was like, it wasn't, what was the name of it? <laughs> It'll come to me now. I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. It's, it's the Rolex name. They wouldn't call yeah, it that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> so basically, when, when this watch was sold for, for you know, like 17.4 million US dollars, including buyer's premium, I think that started the craze where people thought when they buy a, a Rolex, like in 30, 40 years, it will be worth, it will be worth the same. And... Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's what 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 happens. Rolex called it the exotic, exotic dial. dial exactly. I think that's what you exotic, mean. Exotic. That's right. I was like, I was. I wanted to say jubilee dials. Like that made no sense because of the bracelet. It was something <laughs> no, just silly. Call like it an oyster. <laughs> that that's what they do. Just call it an oyster. Oyster dial. Oyster oyster graph. <laughs> oyster case. Oyster bracelet. You know everything. Oyster oyster. In what way is this exotic? It's not regular. What's ex- <laughs> exotic? All right, okay, because it's not regular. That's, a, that's our, de- our definition of exotic. That's not my definition of exotic. But maybe that's just being a Scotsman stuck in the rain all the time. Exotic is beach and uh, nice drinks by uh, in the sunshine, not squares at the end of rectangles. Anyway, uh, so this new Daytona, I think this caught everyone by surprise. Rolex mm. actually doing an anniversary and calling it an anniversary and do is it is it limited edition as well no 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 i mean it's limited edition it doesn't need to be. It. but it, it, it's funny it's like oh it's a big deal they printed a different dial <laughs> used some nail polish to paint the uh 100 marker on the bezel red uh-huh. and changed the hour counter from 12 hours to four to 24 hours and 
it's funny, I have, I like to drive cars very much and I also have a little simulator at home and, you know, it can be, it, it can get pretty intense. And at some point I was wearing a chronograph and I, I remember because I was writing about the Daytona at the time about how Rolex claims that the Daytona allows the drivers to plan out their strategy and keep track of lap times. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm there just steering like crazy and all the rest of it and just super into it lapping within like two tenths of a second consistently and even even less than that you know like you're super focused and then i started thinking about how could i possibly read this freaking sub dial <laughs> at any point you know throughout either a race or a qualifying or just driving in a spirited manner it's 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 all a joke and now it's actually a 24 hour so it's like it's impossible to read it's cute and it looks great but people go crazy for things that are virtually almost completely free for Rolex to do, let's be honest, to paint, uh -huh. to, to just print a different dial and a different color. And then, I, I kid you not, this will be like the hottest thing for, for so many people because it's, oh, it's a Newman dial. It's basically like any other watch, but a different dial. And again, it's like, I don't really see the merit in changing one gear from like 12 hours to 24 hours as the be all and end all of, of watchmaking engineering. So. Uh, yeah, here's a little down-to-earth take on, on this Daytona, but I'm sure it's going to end up on Chrono 24. And by the way, they're high-fiving one another. They're like, guys, we did it. <laughs> something different. <laughs> we celebrated something we like. You know, this racing thing that, you know, we care about. Hey, look, another open case back. And it's so much fun. It's $50,000. Like, that... <laughs> <laughs> So like I, I you're so right, David's right. But to Rolex, they're celebrating that they're patting themselves on the back. This represents the new era. This is a youthful thinking. You know, this is this is kick ass to them. <laughs> well, you know, somehow they went back to the roots, right? Somehow they did uh, it again, Jose. <laughs> how do they keep going to the how do they keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper? Well, you know, from a from a from a historic point of view, uh, also, you know, referring to Le Mans for the Daytona is, is, is quite interesting because originally the watch, you know, the, the, this chronograph wasn't called the Daytona, it was called Le Mans, I think. And then only, I think, probably like, you know, one year later, they, they changed it to Daytona. So it, it has some... Do you know what sounds better in America, Jose? Because it's not Le Mans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just saying. The whole brand name was designed to sound great to say. That's the way they think. I, I do think it's incredibly weird that a watch that's named after one race is used to celebrate another race. It, it's just, it's just we're going to use this Speedmaster and we're going to celebrate no, it going democratic. to Mars. Rolex says it doesn't matter what race you like, we're into you. <laughs> buy our watch, race lovers. Buy our watch. Just yes. buy it. <laughs> yes. Hey, by the way, the 100 marker in the, you know, on the bezel, the nail I think polish. That's, that's like yep. filled with with color. It's because it, it doesn't look as deep as the the rest of the markers. It looks like that one was like really filled with uh, with red color. You could be right. You could be right. It's probably literally nail polish, and the rest are PVD <laughs> platinum or something like that. Because that's that's what Rolex uses on these uh, circum bezels. Let, let's not forget. You remember when we talked about the puzzle dial, and I talked about some of the legal mm -hmm. reasons why Rolex might want to do this. This is a dial that is now being copied all over the place. Yeah. And Rolex themselves has not produced it until now for a long, long time. 
going mm. to the idea that Rolex wants to assert some ownership in the their actual intellectual property or to create some trademark, they now need it's to assert late. we're we're you know we're also doing it. You do say too late, but they think quite long term, and they're trying to establish mm. foundation now that this this is and has been part of their heritage. I think they're going to try to fight back to retain some control. I think they actually have this long term plan. I think they're seeing it over a ten or twenty year period. But I would be surprised if we didn't see more weird stuff like this. That is like, oh wait a minute, that's a dial they haven't made in a while. I'm not saying it's their entire strategy, but they but I believe in it, that they're putting together. Again, a legal strategy to protect more of the things they feel are theirs. Interestingly, the Oyster and Pop children's clock people have reemerged, and I don't know if you recall this story from a few months ago that they were on the receiving end of a letter from Rolex. So that is still rumbling on, but interestingly, the girls that run Oyster and Pop have started reposting quite a lot of pictures of their clock where it was before just a wee sideline in educational clocks they're now really pushing it so i as i understand it there's going to be some breaking news on that reasonably soon or at least an update on what's happening with that particular claim but go and check out oyster and pop and you can follow along with that particular story as well Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vial invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vial in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Vial harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-wild.com to see more. To me, this ties in the whole thing of people crossing lanes from, you know, auction houses trying to be retailers, trying to make markets, watch brands, setting up museums and again, trying to influence things that they should keep away from. And this is then like media selling watches. And you had an interview through the week on Superlative with the guys at Worn and Wound, who I think it would be fair to say have moved from the pure media side to being retailers and exhibition hosts, etc. You were recently at one of their wind-up watch fairs. What was the thinking in your chat that you had? Yeah, so I interviewed Zach Weiss, who's the co-founder you know, of Worn and Wound, and we've known each other for a number of years, and we were colleagues for a lot of that, and, and his company... Uh, over the last several years, took a direction that was more along the lines of an events company with these wind-up events, as well as selling watches. They choose a particular lane, meaning prices within a certain spectrum, usually on the sort of more entry-level side. And they have, you know, positioned themselves into a company that primarily sells things and has a media component around that. And we talked about the evolution of, you know, his his company and his team around 
you know, what that was and, and philosophically what that meant. He's quite happy now because as a store owner, he gets to design more watches. He likes to do graphic design and it's great that he now gets to produce some of the things he wants. He gets to sell the watches he likes. He now is making some watches that he wants to exist. I think for a lot of people who are design lovers, it's actually a great thing to move that direction because they get to, again, create that life around them, that create that aesthetic that they like. And that's been very satisfying. You know, it, it is, I think, it, it's not something they're shy about saying that they're not traditional media in the way that a blog to watch is traditional media. I think that they're mature enough to, you know, acknowledge the fact that you can't be a store and be independent media and be all those things. But that's a direction they wanted to go in. I think that the wind-up events not only proved to be popular, but proved to be an interesting challenge to them. And I think that there are a lot of smart guys there that like challenges. And they saw an area that they could grow. There's very little to grow in doing business with the Swiss for an American media company. They're just not a lot of areas you can grow. But there are areas to grow when it comes to making events around the country where Swiss and other brands can come and show off their goods. That's something they understand. And so they found an area they can grow. There's a lot of challenges around events and interesting problems to solve, as I said. And so it was very interesting to talk about how they're wrapping their minds around this and and doing something that there was a need for. We mused about the fact that, you know, the Swiss never could really agree to do something like this. I mean, it really sort of took people here on American soil to do it. And I think that's the same case anywhere in the UK. It's going to take a UK outfit to have events there. In any other part of the world, it would take some type of local organization to facilitate those types of events. And that's what we've seen. And again, I think that's an interesting opportunity. If there aren't events in your in, in your locality, in your country, you might need to start it. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So I, I, I enjoyed that. And I also like to see where where their business will go, where our business will go, and, and, and where the intersections will be. Great. So go and check out that episode of Superlative, if that whets your appetite. We've not got a lot of time left. So I'm going to ask, David, you were at Breggy. What did you discover at Breggy? Did you introduce them to the world of modern smartwatches? Yes, that's exactly... No, that's not what happened. <laughs> 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 I was in Paris at the launch of the new Type 20. And um, boy, it was interesting. Um, it's It's been a while that I've, I, I, I was at, at an event of this scale. Um, you know, it was set at between 350 and 380 guests were there. A good two-thirds of those were either retailers or distributors or VIP clients of the brand. So a fraction were, were journalists from all over the world. And I was just doing the maths in my head on, you know, just on the airfare and the hotel and the and all the other costs. And this was easily like a five or six million Swiss franc event, probably more. Um, so that, yeah. that's that's a very reserved um, estimate. And again, it's a, it's a huge event held in Paris. We went. We visited the museum where there were a num- um, number of Breguet planes, of all things, actually, and some Breguet instruments as well on display, which was very cool to see. And we went a good day and a half, maybe more, before we could see the watch, and it was unveiled after a super long dinner at like close to midnight. So you can imagine, like everyone's <laughs> like, "Okay, well, when are we going to? Is this, is there a new watch, or are we just here to like enjoy Paris or whatever?" And and so finally they revealed the new watch, and it was interesting because it's been so. so 
so poorly um, received overall. I mean, <laughs> yes. if you go to um, you know the brand's very own Instagram channel, it's not like what we write or other people write or whatever else. It's just it's just regularly. Um, and consistently uh, criticized overall for its size, for its statement, and whatever else. And don't get me wrong, it's not a perfect watch. Very few watches are. Um, you know, a fraction of a percent of watches come even close to being perfect, but as far as I'm concerned. But this one, many people like mocked at the date window and the Swiss made text location on the dial, which is at 4.30, both of them are. And once you look at the watch in person, it's it's not as prominent as on the pictures. And so it's easy how many thousands of people can come to a conclusion and get into this echo chamber and mock a watch that they have not seen with their own eyes. And I'm not saying it's possible for everyone to see it and it's fun to just, you know, make, you know, judgmental calls and just criticize watches and then move on to the next one uh, in our fast-paced world. But at the same time, when once you see it in person, you can see part of the reason why they did it. Um, it's, it doesn't, it's not as bad as people make make it sound like, oh, you, it's impossible to look anywhere else but that stupid date window. I agree that one of the two watches, because there were two versions, one which is called a civilian version and the other one is a military version, but both of them obviously are luxury watches and none of them will find their place in a fighter jet's cockpit. So um, one of them could have had no date. And again, we could just dwell on this for ages, but the point is that the watch feels like it would have been a hit in the mid-2010s. It's late yeah. by a number of years. And it's funny because we've been saying that the tide has been uh, turning on the large watch trend. And, you know, 10 years ago, people would have said to a 42 millimeter watch, like, what, only 42? I'm not buying that. I'm not buying anything under 44 or 45. And now what you hear are people saying it's too large at 42, which is funny, right? How that changed. Um, the movement is very cool. In a sense, it's highly engineered, it's high spec, it's five hertz, it has a new reset mechanism, it's it's overall nice movement. But again, the packaging uh, feels like a, a good, like a step back from the from the Type 20 that we know and love from, from the 1990s onwards. Big fan of the Type 20, but uh, I, I will reserve judgment till I see one of these in the flesh, but certainly the photographs are not encouraging. As we approach the end of the show, Yuzi, what can we expect from you next on the website? What are you working on just now that you're going to reveal to the world as the next latest and greatest? I'm working I'm working on a new article and it's about uh, pre-Rolex Submariner diving with uh, Rolex Oyster watches. So there was uh, there was this uh, Italian expedition in 1952 to the Red Sea. And uh, it turns out they were equipped with um, with um, the same, basically the same watches as the Mount Everest uh, climbing party, and they used these uh, watches uh, for diving. And uh, they dove like in total. This expedition, uh, you know, uh, was longer than one year, and they uh, they dove like for ten thousand hours or something. Uh, in total, and uh, and you can see basically the guys wearing this uh, these watches underwater, which is fascinating. Cool. When can we expect to see that? I hope to publish today or tomorrow. Sounds awesome. Put an eye on the website for that. Ariel, what are you up to this coming week? There's going to be a lot of watch brands in town here in LA, and I've got some interesting meetings with retailers. Definitely trying to figure out how to close that last mile. And what I mean by that is. 
uh, getting the watches from retailers into the hands of consumers right now is actually a, a challenging thing uh, for there's a lot of brands that just sort of aren't really able to connect uh, to the consumer and communicate that. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing sort of a study to figure out in, in the era of the internet, what a lot of the retailers are doing. And then some of the interesting things that we'll, we'll be doing is featuring some of their stories, because I think everyone here agrees. Some of the greatest stories that aren't told are the retailer stories. Um, the people, mm, uh, the way they got into the business, what they do on a regular basis. I mean, just David and I's adventures talking about interesting retailers, you know, uh, you guys mm-hmm. probably have mm-hmm. your own. So figuring out how to get these individuals to tell their stories and how to uh, bring their businesses in the modern era is, is one of my many side projects. Good stuff. And David, did you have to return the tuxedo that I saw you were wearing at the Breggy Ooh. show? Um, no, actually, um, I still have that. It's, um, it's funny. I got that at, I don't know, many years ago at H&M or something like that. It's just, I just <laughs> bought it for the, for the cool color and I never put it on for like years. And I, I realized, oh, this is such a stupid purchase. It wasn't expensive, but still. And then I realized it's, it's the perfect thing for black tie things. So, so I was like, I'm so happy. I got away with like $80 for like a, a actually rather smart looking thing. So yeah, I was thrilled. Good stuff. So David shopping in the bargain basement bucket as yes, normal. Excellent. Good stuff. Well, thank you for joining. Thank you very much for joining us, Jose. Jose, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, periscope.com or on Instagram, Periscope or my uh, backup account, Perestroika. <laughs> yes. Always important to have a backup account when you do what you do. Yes. Yes. And uh, just one final question, because obviously you've become the focus of this kind of coverage do you find yourself having to do less and less of the initial stuff because people are just bring you information more than they used to like are you just getting t- are you getting tipped off all the time by executives and watch brands and auction houses well yes i mean there's there's a lot of information that uh, is being brought to my attention and you know you need to be very careful with this uh, with this information because it might be mm. misleading or it might be someone who wants to you know the, you know like an open there's some some open uh, how to say like someone wants to damage someone's yeah. reputation and wants to use me you know for for that purpose so i'm always very careful what kind of information i really you know um, turn into into an article you know so in most cases I, I always, you know, uh, most of the time I uh, use my, my own research, things that I find out by myself. But I thought this case was just so interesting. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a real case because there were like several people talking about it. And uh, also within the, the, you know, Omega community, all the people received the same, the same information. So the case was, was real. And I thought it's, it's just a... It's just an interesting topic. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for all the work you've done in this and other cases that we both cover and enjoy reading about. Uh, That's it from everybody here this week. Do join us again next week. Goodbye. Catch you next week. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.